Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to mini episode 164 of Real Life Ghost Stories and I have one story for you today and it is a story from Jen that is broken into three different stories and it comes from January the 20th 2022. In 2003 I moved across the country to live with someone I met on the internet. The move had been ill-advised, full of warnings and portents that it was an overall bad idea. I had stubbornly forged ahead anyway I had stayed at his place once before for a week in May. The tiny house had felt eerie and off, but I had dismissed it as a culture shock and a slanting floor. Now that I was manoeuvring among the boxes and furniture crammed into the space, it felt oppressive and overwhelming. Again, I tried to chalk it up to a culture shock and the undeniable fact that the relationship, while workable long distance, was turning into a controlling nightmare in the confined space of the ageing tiny house on the banks of the Ohio River. Little did I know, everything was going to get much worse. The house was tiny, three rooms over a dirt floor cellar, with a spring in one corner that caused a trickle of water to seep out under the rough-hewn floor, under the wide porch, and cascade merrily down the crooked stone steps and into the narrow street when the rain was particularly hard. It was originally the summer kitchen for the large three-storey house next door. Sometime between when it was built around 1840 and the early part of the 20th century, it had been converted into a tiny little cottage. The spring seeping into the cellar floor was causing the corner of the house to slowly sink, tilting everything down the steep hill on which it was built. The back of the cottage was dug into the hillside, The small rear terrace banked with a rough-hewn stone wall. The front of the cottage was well above the grade, steep wooden stairs leading to a wide porch that ran the length of the house. Because it was originally an outbuilding for the larger home next door, there was only a small stone path edged by a crumbling dry stone wall between them. Like I said, the place felt off from the start. Not long after I moved in, we got a dog. The backyard, while large, was not really fenced and far too steep to be of any real use. Very active CSX train tracks marked the rear border some 20 yards up the hill. About 50 yards further east along the tracks was an abandoned cemetery full of headstones in German, stuffed with Spanish flu and Cincinnati race riot victims. So when the dog had to go out, you had to take him on a leash and wait while he did his sniffing and his business. I hated it. The tiny back terrace was in full clear view of the house next door. 
and it often felt like the only thing keeping something horrible at bay was the ancient and uneven stone wall between the two properties. It just seemed to loom there, whitewashed with black windows staring down at you in the middle of the day while the dog wandered and found a good spot for a constitutional. It was owned by an evangelical preacher and he rented it to parishioners who were down on their luck. Neighbourhood rumour had it that he had lived there a decade or so before until his wife went crazy and tried to kill herself and the children. No one who lived there seemed particularly stable. The place was divided up into two apartments one on the first level, one on the second, and an empty attic space that was never rented. Each floor had a couple of the long, narrow curtains of the time that faced our house. All except the third floor were screened with heavy curtains or the slightly nuttier tinfoil. Not long after I moved in, we were awoken in the night by the sound of emergency vehicles. We stepped outside under the pretext of walking the dog, and spoke with an officer at the edge of our property. He was eager to share. The father of the family renting the ground floor apartment had gone on a drunken rampage and beat the wife severely, and he was being taken to jail and she was being taken to the hospital. According to Officer Friendly, there were mental health and a lot of drug addiction issues with the parents, and the conditions in the apartment were ugly. Lots of neglect and filth, and the children were going into protective custody. Whatever happened that night, the couple never returned, and the landlord cleared out their apartment onto the street for the scavengers and the trash collectors and set about renting it again. The next set to rent the ground floor apartment were a middle-aged woman and her daughter. They were typical evangelical Baptist types, long hair, long skirts, Bibles. They were nervous and quiet, and whatever it was in the house seemed to be leaving them alone. At first... The second floor tenants never stayed long, always moving out after a few months. Soon after, the landlord's nephew took the second floor apartment. He seemed to like hanging out in the narrow walkway along the side of the house. He was always there, with a beer and a smoke. When I went out with the dog or was leaving the house in general, he always seemed to be there. He seemed to take an interest in our property. And me. It seemed friendly enough if sort of unnerving at first. He would lean over the knee-high wall and talk with me while I was on dog duty, even offering to mow our extremely steep and overgrown lawn. I took him up on that offer. The lawn was a bitch. After a while I asked him about the third floor, if anyone had that apartment because sometimes I saw movement and a pale face staring out the attic window. He told me that no one lived up there, or even went up there because there was a powerfully evil ghost up there from around the time the house was built. He went on to tell me that it had driven all the people who lived in the third floor crazy, and had even caused evil things to happen to him in the second floor apartment, but that he was strong in Jesus and it wouldn't affect him. All of the Satan and Jesus talk was too much for me, so I just smiled and took the dog back inside. I tried to avoid looking up at the third floor window any time I went out anymore, but if I did happen to catch it, there was always some faintly glowing shape just on the inside of the glass. That winter I became pregnant with my first child. Around the same time my boyfriend admitted that he had lied about quitting smoking and after a huge fight 
I told him that he could smoke outside, but not inside. He would always take the dog out with him, and I was so glad I didn't have to stand in the freezing cold, avoiding the house ten feet from our patio. I slept on the couch a lot during my pregnancy, or in my recliner. It was just more comfortable and the relationship was crumbling. Many, many nights I would be dozing, only to be woken by whispers on the patio, or tapping on the window over the couch that looked out onto our back terrace. It was monumentally creepy, but I had no real options to move out, so I just kind of ignored it. I found the neighbour on our patio a few times, usually with an excuse about shoveling snow or looking for some critter or other. We'd seen a huge black snake slide along the foundation and into the cellar one day, and there were raccoons, a badger and a possum that were regulars back there. I usually smiled and thanked him for taking care of it. My recliner sat on the edge of the hardwood, and I would often hear footsteps walk from the bedroom along the wall, past my head, and then stop in the small space between the kitchen, bath and back door. I would feel the passage of air and hear the rustle of fabric. If I opened my eyes there would be nothing there, but I could still hear and feel it. I noticed that this never seemed to bother the dog or our two cats, so I decided it was benign. The tapping, however, sent the dog into hyper-alert mode. He would get up, growling and pace along the wall, and sit and stare at the back door any time it happened. The back door had glass panes in the upper half, so when you walked past the bathroom or the kitchen, you could see out. Often I would glance out to see the third-story window glowing faintly, or once lit up like there was a light on in the attic. That light stayed on for a week or so, so I had to assume it was a living person in the attic, despite being told that no one was up there. In the early summer, we were again woken in the night to emergency vehicles. This time, the neighbour came over and said the daughter of the ground floor tenant had slipped into a diabetic coma, and the mother had just been praying over her for a week or so. Someone from their church had called in a welfare check when they missed Saturday services, and the officer had found her. The mother slipped into the ambulance with the daughter, and we never saw them again. A month or so later, the contents of their apartment were on the curb, just like the last time. The nephew was the only one living in the house now. The pastor hadn't rented the ground floor unit at this time. We often heard shouting and screaming from the house and creepy, weird music like gospel music played at half speed, at all hours of the day and night. Lights came off and on in all of the windows at random, sometimes blinking on and off like Morse code. The tapping on our windows and doors grew louder and more frequent. Then one day I came home from work to see the nephew being placed, shirtless and in handcuffs, into the back of a police cruiser. The house sat empty and glowering after that, but I was preoccupied with the imminent birth of my daughter, She was an angry baby, screaming and crying for hours and hours at a time. She also refused to sleep. I was utterly at the end of my rope by the time she was a few months old. The only place she seemed even slightly calm was her vibrating bouncer. Her wellness checks didn't indicate that there was anything physically wrong, and the doctors told me that some babies were just like that. They probably thought I was exaggerating. When she was three months old, I flew the 1,700 miles back to my hometown so my terminally ill mother could meet her only grandchild. The entire month we were there, she was happy and slept for hours on end. 
I couldn't believe it. I thought there had to be some grandma magic that my mom was using. It was short-lived. As soon as we were back, she reverted to angry, insomniac baby. Eventually, I started trying to sleep train her with a bedtime ritual and set a bedtime each night. If she started crying, I waited a few minutes to see if she would self-soothe and go back to sleep before intervening. Since the bedroom opened directly into the living space, I would put her to bed and close the door so the light and the noise were muted. At first, there was a lot of crying, before she eventually wore herself out and went to sleep. It frustrated me that there was no consoling her, but I made sure she was safe and her needs were met and just let her rail at the universe. After a few weeks, the night ritual seemed to be helping, and there was some fuss as I put her to bed, but she fell asleep relatively quickly. I started to feel like maybe I could handle this parenting thing. Then it started. 45 minutes to an hour after I put her down, the silence would be broken by this ear-splitting wail of pain and terror, and I would burst into the bedroom only to have the screaming stop the moment the door opened and find my daughter fast asleep, her much-beloved pacifier still in her mouth. Now she was an angry baby, going red-faced and sweaty with her yelling, but she rarely cried in pain and never in fear. These cries were different, they were not in anger. They were the kind of scream that sets panic in a mother's heart. They were cries of agony and terror. They were loud and horrible. This went on nightly sometimes two or three times a night for months. They always stopped as soon as I opened the door. Since there was only one bedroom, I slept in the same room. If I went to bed at the same time, I would wake up to the screams, but as soon as I was upright in bed, they would stop. It happened so often that I started waiting a few minutes to see if the shrieking would stop before opening the door. It happened when I had friends over and they were shocked, saying it had to be my daughter until I opened the door and the wailing stopped immediately and she was peacefully asleep. It happened so much that we eventually started calling it the ghost baby. The wailing would start and we would pause, turn towards the bedroom door and wait. 90% of the time it would last for a minute or two, then stop as abruptly as it started. No burbling or snuffling like babies do when they have self-soothed, just silence. It continued until I left the house and my emotionally abusive relationship, moving back across country to my hometown. My daughter stayed fierce and strong-willed and still hated sleeping, but I never heard the phantom baby again. Was whatever plagued the house next door responsible? Once whatever was there no longer had tenants to harass, did some part of it seep across the dry stone wall and into our tiny house? The two properties were tied together in history, if now separated by property lines. Had some horrible tragedy occurred in our house at some time in the past, something that involved whatever angry female energy lurked in the attic next door, and a baby in fear and pain in our bedroom? Did the spring under the living room or the limestone in the foundation cause some strange entity to manifest? It was said that the Miami peoples avoided the area where Cincinnati is now, refusing to cross the Ohio River into what is now northern Kentucky, calling it cursed, haunted with the souls of thousands slain in some horrible battle in the far distant past. Their name for the land across the river translated to the dark and bloody ground. All I know is that my time there was haunted, 
It was dark and unsettling, and I was very glad to leave it behind. This story absolutely has the makings of a film. Some sort of psychological horror where somebody meets somebody online, they go halfway across the country or the whole way across the country in order to move in with them, despite people saying this probably isn't a good idea. The relationship isn't everything that it was cracked up to be. The house is a bit dilapidated. And then you've got weird shit going on next door. Uh, this, this, Jen, write, write to somebody. I don't know who it is that you need to write to, but write to somebody to get this film made. The really cynical part of me when I was listening to this was like, oh, the screaming noises from your daughter's bedroom. I mean, they could be just tiredness, being completely and utterly exhausted to the point where you, where you start hearing things. And then you said that your friends were, your friends had heard it too and were completely shocked by it. And then they physically saw as well that while this happened, your daughter was asleep and happy and content in her bed. I I just don't know how you'd ever get a moment's peace because every time you'd hear that sound, you'd be like, okay, is it this time? This time, is it my daughter? And if it isn't my daughter, then what is it? What happened on that land that the land was called the dark and bloody ground? Did something happen in the house, in the house itself? I mean, technically the house next door, but you know what I mean? As you said, it was all one house at one point. So did something happen in the house that was causing this energy, these residual screams? Is it to do with the face that you kept seeing in the attic, the woman's face, the pale face? Or did the weird guy who lived next door have somebody in the house with him at times and that's why he kept seeing a pale face in the attic? Is it like a psycho situation where the strange guy who was living there was doing all the weird things like flicking the lights on and off and then making out like it was some sort of ghost infestation or demon I don't know, but all I can say is I am glad you are out of that situation in general. I'm glad that you're not living in that house. I'm glad you're not still in that relationship. And I'm glad that you and your daughter were able to pack up and move away because none of that sounds good at all. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 20 years ago, I bought my first house. It was a hair-raising adventure, and along the way, I had some very memorable home viewings. My real estate broker and I were at odds again. When I said I wanted a cosy bungalow with restored vintage charm, she heard old and run down. There was so much in my price range in her inventory. If only I would just take a look and settle for cheap tract housing from the 1980s. It was true the margin for what I wanted in my price range was not wide, 
but it wasn't slim either. When we met up on Saturdays, we both had a list of available properties, with never a matching set. We'd been at this for months, and maybe I should have looked for another broker, especially since she didn't understand when I told her a potential property felt off and refused to consider it no matter the price or location. It was a golden spring afternoon pressing into the evening. Brisk, but with the potential of summer lingering in the dew from the brief thunderstorm that had passed with furious speed while we looked at a potential farmhouse remodel. It did have potential, and I was eager to talk offers. But there was just one more place she wanted me to see. A great little property, on the edge of the patchwork of suburban sprawl and mostly fallow farmland. To say I was reluctant was an understatement. We had been touring houses for several hours, and I knew anything she wanted me to look at this late was another suburban blank canvas well within my price range, but with all the soul of a mayonnaise sandwich on white with extra sour cream. She had some difficulty locating the property, as the roads here uncharacteristically slewed and curved. The house number obscured by rangy evergreens planted close to the red brick, so ubiquitous to the 1960s ranch house. Eventually, she pulled into the weedy and pitted driveway. Cheerfully, she slipped out of the leather driver's seat of her late model Range Rover, beckoning me to join her on the cracked and uneven walk leading up to the low stoop before the front door. Innocuous as it seemed from the drive, I felt a deep, sucking, angry darkness emanating from the large picture window of the living room. I did not want to go into that house, not even to appease my broker. Slowly, looking all around, I crept up the walk to where Anne was fumbling with the code for the lockbox. Even when the light turned green, it refused to swing open and release the key. I muttered that it was okay. I didn't need to see this house. But she cheerily rattled on that she had seen it last week during an open house. It was vintage and very well kept. I told her I was uneasy. Two women at dusk in a sparsely populated corner of a small country town. Maybe it wasn't safe. She reassured me that it was only late afternoon, really and that all I needed to do was take a peek. The key popped out of the lockbox at that moment and she jammed it in the lock. It wouldn't turn. She struggled and struggled, mentioning to my horror that it felt like someone was holding the knob from the inside. Wasn't that funny? I told her again that this doesn't seem like the place I would like. Too new. Now the door was open, she was chattering away inside, turning on lights, etc., Standard stopped in time around the 1960s ranch house, identical in layout to the one I grew up in. I hated that house, and I hated this one too. I was standing just inside the front door, sneakers drowning in the pristine avocado green shag carpeting, my mind crammed full of angry male energy. I could hear Anne rambling on about the yard and the garage and giving me specs and all the other things that brokers do. But somewhere in the stream I picked out that this was an estate sale because the house was part of probate proceedings. A woman and her disabled adult son had lived here for years until she passed away and the other children decided to sell. My skin prickled. 
I moved quickly across the living room into the adjoining dining room, where Anne was staring into the kitchen. The back door was wide open, the screen door swinging as if someone had bolted from the basement to the backyard as we entered. Then the pounding started. The floor felt as if someone was beating on it with a hydraulic press. Bam, bam, bam. Maybe we should check out the basement, Anne suggested. No, I told her, it was time to leave. She insisted on closing the back door, otherwise she could be in trouble for not securing the house after showing it. I told her she was welcome to, but I was staying in the dining room. I could see the fear seeping through the brave face she was putting on, but I was frozen in terror. Bam, bam, bam. The floor jumped again. I could see it was worse in the kitchen. The old lino trembling under her tasteful pumps. Then, as we both watched, spellbound, all the cupboard doors opened in sync, slowly, and then slammed shut. And again, heavy pounding, rhythmic, like someone running up the basement stairs to open the back door flooded the kitchen. I bolted for the front door, leaving my broker in the crazy chaos of the kitchen. As I stood on the lawn, well back from the house panting, my heart racing, She stepped through the front door, locked it, and returned the key to the lockbox. We both got back in her Range Rover and looked at each other. I really don't think that's the house for me, I told her. She put the car in reverse in reply. We drove in silence for a few miles, both stunned. Did that really just happen? she asked. Yes, I told her. It did. I've been in thousands of houses all over the state and I have never, ever had one that was haunted, I offered. Yeah, she said, sounding defeated. After that, she listened to me when I said a place was off, even if I was just looking at the listing on her phone. Estate agents who might be listening to this podcast, if you are out there, I want to hear from you. I'm interested. Does this sort of thing happen regularly? Now, I don't mean to the extremes of going into a house, hearing all that banging and then all the cupboard doors opening because that is terrifying. But I just feel like if you're an estate agent, first of all, you must see loads of crazy shit in houses, like people living in like crazy conditions or having weird things in their house or going to a house that's like really tiny or really big or, you know, just weird houses. But are there houses that you go into where you think, I feel like this is haunted. Like this is this house has a really weird vibe or a negative vibe. I know it's your job to try and sell them. Um so you kind of have to brush over those things. I'd be interested to know if there are any estate agents listening. Does this happen regularly? And I don't mean regularly as in like every week you're like, "Whoo, hey guys, another haunted house again." But I'm sure that estate agents would all probably have like that one story about that one house that they went to. And something creepy happened or they got a vibe from it. And I think in regards to this story and in regards to so many stories that we get in, your intuition is so important. Your gut instinct is so important. It just keeps us safe. And it means that you, you know, if your gut instinct says no, you can make the decision to walk away from something. And I think actually making the decision to walk away from something is definitely something that comes from a place of privilege because sometimes you just have no choice if it's what you can afford, etc, etc. That house definitely did not sound like a good place to live. (laughs) 
at all. And I also think in line with the first story, you could definitely make a great paranormal sitcom about the estate agent and you and all the little japes and and mishaps that you'd get up to. I live in a small town nestled between two very tall mountain ranges. It's not uncommon for animals to come down and into the town. We frequently see deer, elk and the usual raccoons and coyotes. Every few years there will be a moose or a mountain lion or even a bear when the winters are especially bad. In fact, someone hit a deer with their SUV in the very centre of town this morning. So wild animals, even in the heart of town, aren't all that rare. If it's big or dangerous, you call wildlife control and they dart it and take it back up the mountains. No big deal. Now my house sits on a quiet street a block southwest from the intersection of the highway through town and Main Street, pretty much as downtown as it gets. There are a few pastures and open spaces nearby, but not terribly close. To the south of my house on the corner is an old church. I say old because it was built in 1901, which is old for around here. It's still in use on Sundays and a couple of weekdays, so there is a decent amount of traffic in and out. Across the street to the south of the church is the local high school. It was just remodelled last year and has motion lights everywhere. These motion lights mean business. They come on with the slightest provocation. A slight breeze, a falling leaf, gentle rain. They are there to illuminate it all in 10 minute bursts. But I digress. The high school with its awesome automated torches takes up two whole blocks directly to the south. The street I live on ends in a T-intersection right at the front of the high school. Just to the west of the church, there is a fairly wide driveway that leads between the church and the house to the west and ends in a parking lot behind the church. My backyard and the yards of my neighbours to the north all border this parking lot. The neighbourhood blocks here all have larger interior spaces divided up in different ways between all the houses. Some are gardens, some have horses or goats or old dead cars. Ours got turned into the parking lot for the church, since it lacked one when it was built. Since this parking lot is behind an annex to the church, you can't see much of it from the street, making it convenient for various shady goings-on. Well, as shady as it gets around these parts. This convinced the church to install a light above the door that exits into the parking lot, which is right next to my back fence. The wall of the church annex is part of the side fence to my yard. The back fence is chain link with vinyl slats, so I can see through it into the parking lot, but it's not a super clear view. Looking out my back door or the window on the back of my house, I can see the whole yard, the fence and then the parking lot. We have a giant maple smack in the centre of the backyard. It's so big that in the summer you can't see the fence or the parking lot from the house. But in the winter, when all the leaves have fallen, you can. My bedroom is at the back of the house, part of an addition built in the 1940s. It's an awkward space. The original bedroom and then the addition are almost like two separate spaces joined with a large arch where the back wall of the house used to be. We use the additional space for storage since it's not as well insulated as the rest of the house. My story takes place in the depths of winter, We get nasty cold snaps, where the cold air from the mountain pools in the valley and gets trapped. It gets foggy and icy cold, with not much change from day to night. 
On the night in question, it was probably close to minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. No wind, foggy, like being in a deep freeze. But visibility was a quarter mile or so. I've had insomnia since I was a child, so it's not uncommon for me to wake up in the middle of the night and just be awake. I'm used to it, and just try to roll with it and sleep when I get tired again. That night, I was lying in bed, awake, thinking about maybe playing a game or two on my phone when there was this awful din. All the dogs in the neighbourhood and for miles around it were barking, howling, whining, yipping and carrying on. We get our share of chain barking, but this was different. It was fear. It was warning barking. The sounds that dogs make when there is a threat that scares them, but they need to try and warn everyone. I looked at my phone. It was close to 3am and all these dogs were barking their heads off. It went on for 30 seconds or so and I realised my three cats were in the room and they were all growling and puffed, staring at the big window in the additional section of the bedroom. The light from the church was on and it was illuminating the room. The blinds were closed but it was still a good strong glow. I'm wondering what has the animals all riled up, maybe a coyote or a mountain lion. The dogs don't go nuts over deer, they're too used to them. This deep into winter, a predator wouldn't be out of the question. And if it was something like that, then I should call wildlife control. So I got out of bed and headed to the big picture window that faces out into the backyard. There were a lot of boxes and bins stacked neatly along the wall under it, so I could only get to the very left side of the window. The cats were all arranged on the boxes, looking at the window, growling, fur puffed. I peeked through the blinds looking out over the yard and into the parking lot. There was something in the parking lot. Something weird. Not a mountain lion, and definitely not a coyote. It was big, and shaped funny. My first thought was a newfie with wolfhound legs. My second thought was a dire wolf, but those are extinct. I looked closer, a big body covered in shaggy white fur and long, awkward legs that seemed jointed incorrectly for a canine or a big cat. It had paws. Sort of, they looked funny too. They were too big and lumpy to be paws. It had hunched shoulders and a weird round head without much of a snout, all covered in lots of shaggy, thick, white fur. It looked like an emaciated polar bear, sort of. The thought made me realise how big this thing was. There was a dumpster next to the corner of the church and this thing was standing a couple of yards away from the dumpster and seemed to be the same height. On all fours. It was just standing there in the middle of this icy parking lot facing north. It was not sniffing or moving or looking around like a normal animal would. It was just there. The dogs were all still going nuts and my cats were growling louder. But at the moment, I wasn't really scared or anything. I was just really curious. I was wondering, what the heck is this thing? It's not a prey animal. I know that without a doubt. It's not a deer or an elk or a moose or even an errant cow. It was a predator of some kind. But what? A weird-ass albino bear? A dire wolf on stilts? Some bizarre breed of dog I've never seen before? I couldn't see it super clearly because of the fence. I thought to myself that I could get a better look if I went into the kitchen and opened the back door. The only window that looked out into the backyard was this one, 
so I would actually have to physically open my kitchen door to see out into the yard. I stepped away from my window to do just that, when it suddenly hit me that I do not want to open my back door, and not because it's minus 20 out. I had this sudden moment of panic that I did not want to take the chance of my cats shooting out the door because I know, I just know, that this thing would kill any animal it came across. And I didn't want that animal to be any of my cats. And I super duper didn't want that animal to be me. I peeked out the window again to see the creature turn around and head towards the driveway that is the only way in or out of the parking lot. The movement was creepy and unnatural. The legs were all wrong, all angles and too long and moving in ways that didn't seem possible. It was moving slowly, almost reluctantly, like it didn't want to be heading back to the street but something was making it, like it was a dog and its owner wanted it to finish whatever it was doing and come along. Well, maybe that was it. It was a dog. Someone was walking a weird hybrid bear-wolf monster in the frigid temperatures at 3am. Yeah, that's the ticket. It disappeared down the driveway and the cats all stopped growling, looked at me, and then began fiercely grooming. You know the kind, the I was absolutely not doing undignified things grooming. The freaked out barking had stopped cold like it had never been. Usually you have a few stragglers that don't get the hint that bark time is over, but not this time. Nothing but deep winter silence. I petted the cats and went back to bed. I lay there and thought about what it could have been. I knew that it crossed the street, went into the high school parking lot without any of the motion sensors activating, and that it was heading towards the canyon that leads southwest out of the valley. The canyon with the highway we won't take, even though it cuts 20 minutes off travel time because it feels wrong, like you're about to lose control and crash, like something is watching you and wants you to crash. The canyon that has had tons and tons of accidents. The highway patrol says it's black ice or deer or the angle of the sun or people driving too fast and the road is banked the wrong way on the turns, but still, so many accidents. It just doesn't feel safe, no matter the season or the time of day. The canyon that is littered with failed businesses and abandoned farms because people get sick or they have a run of bad luck that doesn't end until they give up and go back to the valley. The canyon that local First Nations folk refuse to go into because they say it's full of skinwalkers. We go around that stretch of the mountains, out across the marshes and through the low saddle where the river is. It's longer, that highway has fewer lanes and a lower speed limit. Late at night there are beaver and otters and deer to look out for, and three seasons out of four it has fog as thick as pea soup. But the back way doesn't have them. And I know, I know, Whatever it was, it was headed towards the canyon. Oh, that was a great story. I thoroughly enjoyed that story. I can't even begin to question what that was. I'm not familiar with wildlife in the US in particular. The fact that you guys have bears that sometimes wander into your towns after a particularly harsh winter blows my mind. Like, blows my mind. I know they're coming in, like, looking for food and stuff. But I don't know what I'd do if I walked out of the shop one morning and there was a bear walking down the high street. And, like, what what would... I don't know. I find it mad. And then it's like, oh, you just call Wildlife Patrol. 
They trank it, bring it back up the mountains, done and dusted. It's just, it just feels wild to me. It's so beyond anything that we would experience here. And it just feels unfair. You know, you've got animals to contend with. Animals that are big and predatory. Animals that could injure you. That could, you know, hunt you like mountain lions do. And then you have to deal with like supernatural creatures too. It just seems unfair. You know, it just seems unnecessary. But I feel like you did the right thing by not going outside the back door to check. Because I feel like if that thing saw you, you would have been like gobbled up in an instant, never seen again. And obviously you don't want that to happen to your cats either. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you to the wonderful Jen for sending in your three very well written and very interesting stories. Remember, this story came from the 20th of January 2022. If you want to know anything about Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can do so by checking out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for more content, you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content and also every single mini episode and main episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.